Good morning, church. It is uh, really good to be with you today. I want to welcome some of you back who've been uh, across the pond. Some of you have been in strange places like Idaho. So it's good to have, good to have some faces uh, back that we haven't seen uh, here in a while. Now, whether you've been gone for some time or, or not, if you're like me, uh, you need some help. You need um, a refresher. We're in the midst of a story. We're in the midst of a journey going through First and Second Samuel, and it's, uh, it's a historical narrative. There's a lot of characters, uh, a lot of, st- of, of individuals to keep track of. So I want to kind of set the stage for those of us like myself with poor memories or those of you who've been away and are back here. Uh, so God has ordained David to be king. And this happened a long time ago. We are in 2 Samuel 3. So many, many chapters ago, many, many years ago, David has been anointed to be king. And the reader has been waiting and waiting and waiting for David to reign. Now, he's already started to reign, but sadly, the country is divided. And it has a a divided monarchy, if you will. And there have been two kings reigning. And David has only been over a small area of the territory of God's people, of Israel. And so in today's passage, he's going to actually become king over all the land, over all of Israel. And this happens through the means of a power player. The guy who is really responsible for much of the territory is not the king who opposes David, King Ishbosheth? He, he's like a puppet king, but it's this dude, Abner. Abner's got the power. I'm not sure if we would say he's like a mafia boss, but that's kind of what he's like. He's not a man who's obedient to God's word, he's not a man of ethics. And so we're going to see unexpected means that accomplish God's plan of bringing David to be king over all of the territory of the nation of Israel. If we look on the screen uh, back to 2 Samuel 3 and verse 7, it said this there, And Ishbosheth, the puppet king, says to Abner, the power player, the guy who's like the mafia boss, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? This charge, he has taken advantage of this widow of Saul. And Ishbosheth has challenged the, the mafia boss Abner and said, why have you done this? Why have you been with her? This should not be going on. And this is what brings us, this conflict is what brings us to today's passage. Abner was running most of the kingdom of Israel through the puppet Ishbosheth, puppet king, who has now challenged him, and he is upset. So Abner is going to switch sides, and he's going over to David's side, to the side that God has anointed, the one he has anointed to be king. All right, so you got some of the characters straight? You ready for a quiz? No quiz. But hopefully you're listening and you've got some of the characters straight because otherwise you're going to be like, what is this guy talking about? We're talking about Abner. We're talking about Ishbosheth, the puppet king. We're talking 
about David. And this bad thing has happened, this conflict has happened, taking advantage of this vulnerable Rizpah, her name is Rizpah, this widow, and Abner has done that. He's been challenged. One of the few courageous things that Ishbosheth has done has challenged Abner for his immorality. So that brings us to verse 12. So hopefully, if your Bible's open or your device is open, and let's look at chapter 3 and verse 12. So then Abner sends messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? And what's behind that question is, It's my land. I'm running things in this nation. This is God's chosen nation. We're talking about the old covenant. Today, God rules over the earth. Every people, every tribe, every language in the church, that's the new covenant. But in the old covenant, there was a specific nation, Israel. And this man, Abner, is basically saying by this question, whose land is it? He's saying, it's mine. I'm in charge of most of the territory. I'm using Ishbosheth as a puppet king to, to rule and reign it. So he sends word through, uh, this isn't a text message or an email, but he sends couriers to David and says, make an agreement with me. And I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Why is this happening now? Abner's switching sides because he's been confronted and he didn't like that confrontation from Ishbosheth. So he's switching sides. So David gets this word, gets this communique. Verse 13, good, said David. I will make a covenant in the translation that Jill read. My, my translation says an agreement. Covenant's probably better. I will make a covenant with you. So what I'm wanting us to see here in the beginning, what I believe God wants us to see is we live, this is no surprise to any of us, we live in a messy world, in a messed up world, in a broken world. And how God is bringing about his plan of David ruling over all of the territory, all of the nation of Israel is a way that none of us would write the script this way of Rizpah, this widow of Saul, being taken advantage of by Abner, being confronted. He's offended by the confrontation, so now he goes to David. And so God is using these unexpected means to accomplish his plans. Matthew Henry, uh, the commentator, he, he makes this note. He says, It was as lawful for David to make use of Abner's agency that is, you know, Abner, Abner being the power player that he was, uh, as it is for a poor man to receive alms from a Pharisee who gives it in pride and hypocrisy. It's okay for that poor person to receive money that was given in, in, a, in a bad way or from an ill motive. He needs that. He should take it. And we are seeing, the reader is seeing the sovereignty of God here in bringing about the rule of David. The, who points to the greater David, who points to Jesus. We're, we're seeing this happen in, in an unexpected way. So God uses unexpected means to accomplish his plans. Now, a wrong conclusion from this would be, well, hey, this isn't that big a deal, is it, to obey, disobey God's word? If God's using Abner in this terrible situation to bring this about. That would be a wrong conclusion to conclude that. So I'm saying two things here that are kind of intention. One is, the reader, you and I, we're supposed to observe that God uses unexpected means to accomplish his plans, but we are not supposed to disobey God's word. Abner should not have done the things that he has done. 
And yet God is using that to accomplish his plan. So to put it positively, look with me on the screen at Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? One might conclude that by looking at what's happening here in 2 Samuel 3. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? As we've already been reminded this morning, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. We do battle, but we are so thankful and privileged to know the Lord that we don't abuse grace. If you understand grace, you want to live a holy life, a God-glorifying life, a joy-filled life. You don't want to live the kind of life Abner has lived. You don't want to live the kind of life of someone who takes advantage of a widow and when it is confronted decides to switch sides. That's what's happening here. God calls us to see that, to see his sovereignty, but his word calls us to obedience and faithfulness. Jesus says this in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In spite of these men not keeping God's commandments, he is working through unexpected agency in order to accomplish his plan. He is a good God. He is a trustworthy God. So at the end of the day of these first couple verses, what we should take away when we look around us and we, we see the world and it just seems to be in such deep trouble. Uh, looking at headlines today, I don't, I don't even want to, uh, I mean, that, it's just, it can be really discouraging. This is discouraging. The kind of things that are going on in 2 Samuel 3 can be very discouraging. But God is sovereign and he's using the brokenness and the messed up people in this world to accomplish his will. Is that good? It's good that God can be trusted. It's good that he's sovereign. Okay, so that's out of our first couple verses, 12 and 13. So we're in the middle of, of, of verse 13 now. What I wanted us to see is that God uses unexpected means to accomplish his plans. And now we come to the title, if you will, of today's sermon. You know, I pray for God to use his word each week and I don't know how he actually wants to use it in your life. I don't know exactly where you are, most of you. I don't know what you need, but God knows. And so perhaps two of the things that might stick with you, how God might want to speak to you through today's text related to the title, where, where David says, I demand one thing. We're going to look at what that is in just a moment. And then later in the sermon, at the end of the passage, uh, let's party. That is also a theme in today's passage. But I demand one thing. What is this one thing that David would demand? There's this power play going on. You want to rule over the whole kingdom? My people are talking to your people, and let's see what we can get going. And David's going to have one thing that he demands. What is it? Let's take a look at the text and see that. And this is in the middle of verse 13. So he said, I will make a covenant with you, but... Middle of verse 13. I demand one thing of you, Abner Power Player. Do not come into my presence. Or, as Jill's translation had it, I don't want to see your face. They're communicating through couriers at this point. I don't want to see your face unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Now, if you're from some strange place like Idaho and haven't read this book or some other place, who is Michal, daughter of Saul? This was David's wife. This was David's wife. 
So one thing I'm going to demand of you, this is interesting, the one thing I'm going to demand of you, I want her back. I want Michal back. Verse 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, the puppet king, son of Saul, demanding, give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So this is some crazy stuff, and I want to review a little bit of what has happened here with David and his wife, Michal. Going back to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now Saul, before he died, he was the king. He's Michal's father, and she is in love with David. Now this is pretty cool. Because we don't have a lot of romance or love in First and Second Samuel. So, you know, a preacher wants to emphasize this part when it comes up. We have a lot of networking and strategy and politics and abuse and using women. We have a lot of things that are unpleasant going on. But here's something pleasant. Michal was in love with David. This was before they were married. And Saul, the most powerful man in the country, the king, he knows this. He knows that Michal loves David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Now those of you that have good memories, those of you who have been reading this book, you might remember what he was pleased about. Anybody got it? What was he pleased about? That they're going to have a wonderful marriage and lots of children? Say no. You know what he was pleased about? He's going to use Michal's love for David to kill David. To kill him. Now, ladies, imagine you've, you've fallen in love with a man. The very best kind of man, actually. A man who loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your father who's in charge of the military, sees him as a threat. He knows about your love for him. And so your father uses your love for David to kill him. How'd you like to have that as a father? That's who Michal has as a father. This is a terrible and sad history. What's going on? Here, Matthew Henry again writes this. He says, Neither her marrying another, which we'll cover that in a moment, but she's married again, nor his, David has married several others in the time past, neither of those things had alienated him from her. Many waters could not quench that love. I don't think Hollywood has taken this script up, but this could be quite a film. Here, this could be quite a movie. The one demand he has is, I want me, Cal. Yeah, we'll work this, this deal, but I want her. Now, some of you might be thinking, hey, Mike, isn't he thinking politically? Uh, he, he may be, in part, thinking politically. But I believe, I know, the text says that she loved him. And I believe that he loved her as well. And so we have a love story here as well. So David has made this one demand. 
okay, if I'm going to take over the northern tribes, if I'm going to take over most of the area, here's my one demand. Don't show your face to me unless she has been given back to me. So it's a little more complicated. Look at verse 15. So Ishbosheth, the puppet king, gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. So she has a new husband. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. I, I mean, I could just see this in a movie. This is maybe 20 miles. Now, this guy shouldn't have married her. She's already made a covenant of marriage to David, but he loves her. He's been with her. We don't know the details. And, and you can see the movie director trying to deal with the script 20 miles of weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. I think this was quite a woman, Mikal. He wants to stay with her. So then Abner says to him, the one who has the power, go back home. So he went back home. So what does this have to do with our lives? So one observation here is that God uses far from perfect husbands and wives to glorify himself. David and Michal have a romantic, loving relationship, but their marriage is far from perfect. But God wants to glorify himself through our marriages. And what, what David has requested here is, is a beautiful thing. And so I think what, what God would want me to say out of this text is some of us here today, we, we, we don't have great, we don't have this track record. <laughs> we, we, we don't have multiple wives and, and, and this kind of thing going on, snagging someone else's wife or husband when, when they're away. We don't have this kind of thing going on. But we do have relationships that didn't go the way that we would like them to go. Some of us here today, we have exes, we have divorces, we have remarriages, and if we went back long enough, we would not have wanted that to be part of our story. I want to say the very opposite of, of condemnation toward that. What God wants us to do is to obey his word now, in the situation we're in now, in the marriage that we're in now, in the single condition I'm in now, he wants us to look forward and to trust him. You know, we do confession every week here. And the opposite conclusion of why we do confession every week is that we want to make everybody feel miserable and feel bad for their sins. It is the exact opposite reason. We only want to confess our sins. We want to go before the Lord just long enough to go in, to repent, and then to move out and to move forward and to trust him to taking us to a place of joy and obedience. So God uses my far from perfect marriage to glorify himself. That's what he wants to do in all of our lives. That's what I believe he is doing in a, in a, in a less far from perfect way in the life of David and of Michal. There's a verse that I've memorized in Scripture. It's a short one. It's Isaiah 43, 18. And it says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. The enemy wants us to linger and think 
about those times in our lives in the past where we didn't do right by the Lord. He wants us to linger and and identify with those things, and God wants us to forget the former things and not dwell in the past and to move forward in trusting him for who I am in Christ now. That verse, forget the former things, do not dwell in the past, is in the context of the Israelite army losing all sorts of battles. And so they're afraid to go into warfare. And God is saying, no, don't be afraid. Trust me, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you and be ready to go into battle. That is one of the ways to respond to this text. God uses far from perfect marriages, husbands, wives, single people to glorify himself. But Mikal, Mikal has my heart and this romance has my heart. And I think it is appropriate for us this morning to look at her life in a little more detail and think about the common human condition that we might share with the people in this text, which is what we're about, finding grace each week, finding the common human condition with whatever we're reading about, how we are like the people in this text, and that we need God's grace. That's what we're trying to do every week. And I want to do that thinking about this tragedy of Mikal's life. So a few, a few summaries. I've already hit some of them. Mikal's tragedy. Her father, who is the king, uh, wants to use her to kill David. Saul views David as a threat. Her homicidal king and father belittles her love. Instead of cherishing it and encouraging it, you love a man after God's own heart, a man who trusted God and has done all these things and they're singing songs about him, instead of rejoicing with his daughter over this, he's going to be a power player and use that in order to eliminate David. Those of you that haven't been here, how is he going to do that? He said, okay, there's a price you pay to marry the daughter of the king and that price is high. He says, I want you to kill a hundred Philistines, which is basically a death sentence for most people. So this is giving your your military man a death sentence. I want you personally to go kill 100 Philistines. Once you do that, then I'll give you my daughter. What does David do? How many did he kill? Some of you might remember. 200. He did it. He didn't die. Her homicidal father didn't accomplish his mission. And so he ends up giving his daughter to David because David exceeded the trap that Saul set. How did he manage that? Because he was such a skilled warrior? Mostly not. He was a skilled warrior, mostly because the Lord his God was with him and anointed him to be king over Israel. The hero of every text of scripture is God, the Lord. He is at work. But I'm wanting us to enter into a woman's heart right now, men and women, young and old. So her father gives her to the king, to David, the future king in marriage. Then Her father is so full of jealousy and rage because of David's success, he kidnaps her. He sends his people to go get her and remove her from marriage. You think she had some stuff to deal with? Say yes. She had some stuff to deal with. All of us here have stuff to deal with. This woman had a lot of stuff to deal with. 
And I believe God wants us to see that in this text in 1 and 2 Samuel. So then her father, king, gives her to another dude named Paltiel. He's the guy in our text who travels perhaps 20 miles. We're not exactly sure how far it was, but he, the text is clear that he traveled a long way, back to verse 16, weeping behind her all the way. So this marriage is ending. It shouldn't have started, but it's ending. And she's going back to David. Abner uh, takes her from him, and Abner's the one that takes her. Father gives her to him. I think I misspoke there. Abner takes her uh, from Paltiel and is bringing her to David, and Abner returns her to David. This was a difficult life. This was a woman who lived a tragic life. So, What I say almost every week is we actually want the Bible to read us more than we want to read the Bible. So the mutual human condition that you and I, and I'm speaking particularly to men now, but women also, that we might share with Abner, with Saul, would be using women. Looking at women as objects to be used. None of us have done it in the way here, the way that it is here in 2 Samuel 3, but I would guess almost every man here can identify with the temptation of using a woman in a way that dishonors the Lord. Whether that's a real woman or a woman on a poster, or on a screen, or what have you. This is what I mean when I say the Bible wants to read us, and we need God's grace to not be this way. Does this kind of thing happen today? It, it does. It does. So, I don't spend a lot of time in the car. I'm very thankful. I, some of you have long commutes, but I... You know, for me, a long commute, we had a, a meeting of pastors in Cool today. So it's a really tough drive over there um, to Cool. But I listen to sermons sometimes, but I listen to podcasts as well when I'm driving around Auburn or driving around the foothills. And I, re- I, I listened to a podcast today. You might expect me to be listening to a, a pastor preaching, and I, and I do that. You probably wouldn't expect me. This may be the first time. The queen of disco has made it into my sermons. But I listened to an interview today, uh, this week rather, with, anyone know the queen of disco, who it is? Donna Summer. Now it's very interesting. You might not think of your pastor listening to an interview with Donna Summer. A couple reasons. One is, it's just not what you're thinking. When you woke up today, I bet our pastor listened to Donna Summer this week. She's also been dead for some time. So it's a replay, this interview. So she died in... 2012. So this is an old interview, but it was on the radio this week. And I listened to this interview. And I think it was the providence of God that I, that I listened to this interview. And I want to share with some of it with you because it's actually related to the common human dish, condition in this text of objectifying and abusing women. That is a common mutual condition that we have with the people in this text. 
The flesh in us wants to distance ourselves and we're nothing like Abner. We're nothing like Saul. We're nothing like Abner who would take a widow for his own pleasure. So let me tell you a little bit of of what I learned about Donna Summer. She grew up in the church. Her mother and father were godly people. She sang in theater. She sang in church. She was in Europe of all places, and somebody got a hold of her and decided, we have a star on our hands. And they made her into something that she wasn't. Now, unlike, unlike Mikal, she had a choice in the matter. Regrettably, Mikal, she doesn't have a choice, by the way, about these marriages, and about being taken, kidnapped. She, she doesn't have, there's no sheriff that's going to come. There's no 911 to call. Her, her, functionally, her father is the sheriff. Her father is the king. So I don't want to say Donna Summer is just like Mikal. She's not. But there's some similarities here. So she grows up in the church, and all of a sudden, somebody discovers her. I think this was in the 70s. And her first album comes out, and it's this huge success. And the huge album is, su- the album is such a huge success that they put a, a picture of her that was on the front cover of this album on this cake that's right here. And the, the record company had a plan that that, that worked really well, I'm talking about it today, to get promotion out of this cake that was made in Los Angeles. They made this cake with her lying across the cake, that's what's on the front cover of the album, not so modestly dressed, and they flew the cake to New York, first class, it took up two seats, and they had news reporters there, and they had some people accompany the cake for the celebration party in New York for her first album with her parents there. Her parents, I think it was for the first time, certainly the first time see the cake and see these photos of her. And her parents are crushed. They think, we thought we raised our daughter well, but her body is a cross album cover and now a cake. And she's torn. She sees the look on her parents' faces, which is the exact opposite of the faces of all of the, everyone else in the room. This is a celebration. This is a great thing. And that was the beginning of Donna Summer's decline in her soul. Outwardly, she's having tons of success. But she went like this. Men took her and made her into something that she did not want to be. She said yes to it. There's some culpability there. I'm emphasizing the other side of this right now. Because as you listen to the interview, it is very clear that she was not wanting to be the kind of woman how she was portrayed. And she gets to the point where she's ready to take her own life. And although she grew up in the church, she did not love Jesus with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there is a good ending to this story. She comes to the point where she's ready to take her life, and she's telling 
By the way, this is on NPR, Terry Gross. She tells Terry Gross, I was born again at this moment where I was so low after all of this worldly success and being used primarily by men. There is a common human condition that we share as men in the flesh to use women for our own purposes, whether it is to get wealthy or whether it is to take advantage of Rizpah, this widow, whether it is to take advantage of Mikal. When the Bible reads us, we read this and we say, God, free me from any kind of using a woman, even if it's simply her image, to rob you of glory. This is part of what this text is about. God wants to use far from perfect husbands and wives to glorify himself. David and Michal have not had the greatest of marriage, but his one demand, don't let me see your face, Abner, unless you bring her back to me. We made vows. I'm going to go back with her. She loved me. I'm going to make this right. God is calling us to be obedient to his word today. In spite of disobedience, he's accomplishing his plans through unexpected means. All right, we've made it through verse 16. Let's finish up. We're going to get through verse 22. Just a few sentences left here. Verses 17 through 22. So Abner confers with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant, David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner's heart is not in this. He's a a promoter. He's a wheeler dealer. But he's using God's word here to bring about the unification of the kingdom under one king, under David. Verse 19, Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. No Zoom call, no texting, He's going directly to them. They're going to be the most difficult tribe to win over. They're the tribe of Saul. So Abner goes to them directly in person. He didn't send uh, uh, couriers. He didn't send emissaries. He went directly. Verse 19, then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel, to tell David everything that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, so he finally comes face to face, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. I've got that circled in my Bible, and we're going to come back to that. David prepared a feast for him and his men. This is an ungodly man. Through unexpected means, God is establishing his kingdom under David, and David prepares a feast for him. Come back to that. 21, then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a compact with you, a treaty with you, a covenant with you, and, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So the two things that I thought God may want, I don't know what he wants out of this text and out of this sermon to speak into your life. I don't know every one of your situations, but I think one of the things that might stick with you out of this text is that phrase that, that I circled, I closed my Bible too early, about the celebration, about the party that he has. David prepared a feast 
for him and his men. I want to suggest that we, the common human condition that you and I should have with David, the man after God's own heart, is to regularly celebrate and party accomplishments, whatever those are in the advancement of God's kingdom. What is the advancement of God's kingdoms here? The entire territory coming under one king, under, under David. It didn't happen the way that David or, or any one of us would have written, but it happened in a broken and, and, and very hard way. But it has happened. And David is celebrating and partying. And I believe that God wants us as his people to celebrate and party more and more than we do. So your response should be, well, Mike, does the text of the Bible really support this? That's how you should maybe be responding. I want to say today's text supports this. I want to say all kinds of texts support this. And I want to show you one more before we finish up today from Deuteronomy on the screen. Look at it with me. Deuteronomy 14. This is an encouragement for you to party. Deuteronomy 14. And if the way is too long for you, that is the way to Jerusalem. The context here is tithing. You know, we have churches, we've already talked about it today, in every, almost every people group, almost every nation, every tribe, every language, all over the world. It's such a beautiful thing. But in the Old Covenant, God's people were in a nation. There were some who came from outside and became part of his covenant community, but it was a nation. It was an ethnic people. It was Israel. And they had one place to worship. It hasn't been built yet where we are in 2 Samuel, and that place is the temple in Jerusalem. So if the way is too long for you to the temple in Jerusalem so that you are not able to carry your tithe, so picture a husband, a wife, children, maybe grandchildren, animals, traveling up to Jerusalem to, to, to give their offering, their tithe. So if you can't make it there, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then, and then I'm going to reveal it in a moment. Some of you know this passage, so you be quiet. <laughs> what do you think? Most of you probably didn't read Deuteronomy 14 today, and you probably don't know this even if you've read it. So if I didn't know the answer, I would might be thinking, okay, if you can't make it to Jerusalem with your tithe, you stop in the town that you're in, and you... Give it to the poor. You talk to the elders or the leaders in that town. You figure out who's needing it. You give it to them. That's kind of, if I'm the author of the Bible, that's what I would probably put in here. That's what I would expect. So, what does God say? Your family is on their way to worship in Jerusalem. They've got their tithe. What should you do with it if it's too long and arduous of a journey and you can't make it? Then, you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand. And go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Well, what might that be? New Bibles. Oxen or sheep or wine. <laughs> spend your tithe money on wine. That's what Deuteronomy 14 says Oh my gosh, but what else? What's the next one? Strong drink. Deuteronomy 14 says to spend your tithe on Jack Daniels. I think that's what strong drink means. Now, the Bible is opposed to drunkenness. 
It is a sin. That's not something to laugh about. Many of us here have experienced that, where we lose the ability to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, and we're controlled by another spirit. It's interesting the, the people that market this stuff are, are honest, and they put spirits. Have you noticed that? Outside. So you can use this in a way that is wicked and evil. That is not what we're talking about here. You use your tithe for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there. A joyous celebration before the Lord your God, and rejoice you and your household. The Bible calls us to party and to celebrate in the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and this is just a beautiful, beautiful text. We'll close with the words of um, Randy Alcorn, who also is encouraging believers to party and to celebrate because of Scripture. He says, this is a seven-day, he's talking about Deuteronomy 14 now, this is the seven-day party of rejoicing in God. And the Old Testament is full of God-ordained celebrations for the Israelites. God built into Israel's calendar seven holidays amounting to about 30 days of feasts per year. Add the weekly Sabbaths, and the total comes to around 80 days of feasting and rest annually. Add the later feasts of Purim, which was one day, and Hanukkah, eight days, plus weddings and birth celebrations, which, by the way, the celebration with Abner and his 20 guys may have been a second wedding celebration. It may have been about the kingdom as well of Israel coming under one king. It's probably both of those, but it was probably a wedding celebration, a, a renewal of vows of Michal and I are back together. Weddings and birth celebrations. And the amount of time off for celebration and worship exceeded three months annually. In the Old Covenant. Do you want to hear an amen for the Old Covenant? I mean, this, this is God's word. Am I saying that we should be partying for three months? Probably not. What I am saying is that we need to find cause when there's a spiritual breakthrough in your life, in your kid's life, in your parent's life, in your neighbor's life, in your small group, in your church. We need to celebrate. And we need to glorify God in that celebration. And, and God actually commands us to do that. And it's often going to happen in ways that are not perfect. This, this reunion of this marriage, it was not exactly how you would want it to go. But Michal loved David. And David loved Michal. And God wants to be glorified in our marriages and in our celebrations. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for David's insistence on this one thing to happen. He was faithful to his vows to Michal, and you brought them together. Lord, we see you behind the scenes of all of this tragic stuff going on in Michal's life, and yet you brought the kingdom together under David. Lord, bring us together under the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus the greater David, and help us to be eager to celebrate spiritual victories, weddings, births, whatever it is, and to glorify you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.